The big theme is, can Roberts duck these fastballs that are flying at his docket? Or is he going to have to accept that the court will become the political center of gravity again by June 2019? There is a requirement of trench warfare. That is, every single election change has to be fought in the courts and is draining the resources of voting rights organizations. And it is impossible to go after every uh, single case. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law and the rule of law. This week, we confronted the heartbreaking news that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, parenthetically the reason I went to law school, uh, will be stepping back from public life following a diagnosis of early stages of dementia, likely Alzheimer's. The justice is 88. In a letter announcing her decision, Justice O'Connor asked that Americans continue the hard work to which she has devoted herself absolutely tirelessly since her retirement specifically civic engagement and civics education for our children. With the midterm elections looming just under two weeks away and the daily news of vote purges and voting irregularities and vote suppression, we wanted to check in this week with one of our show's voting gurus, UC Irvine's Richard Hassan, to talk about the difference between an Anthony Kennedy and a Brett Kavanaugh in the voting cases ahead and to review the voting rights cases that we a little bit elided in the end of the term coverage. But first, we turn to a surprise, uh, the current term, which is actually happening, and we short-shrifted it a little bit this fall as a result of the Brett Kavanaugh news. And so we have summoned our old friend Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the courts for Slate, to help us go back and look under the hood of the 2018 term already launched uh, and to tell us what is coming down the pipeline uh, as we move forward. So, Mark, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me back on. Always a pleasure to be summoned. Um, and there's just a lot to discuss, uh, even in terms of just the most recent actions uh, this week at the high court, uh, including voter IDs in North Dakota, which we will talk about with uh, Rick Hassan later, and Wilbur Ross in the census. Can you can you get us up to speed on what happened this past week in terms of the census case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so As I think we all know, uh, the Trump administration is eager to add a question to the 2020 census about uh, one's citizenship. Uh, The Trump administration wants this census to compel everyone to say whether or not they're citizens, if they're citizens of the United States. Uh, A question that has not been asked on the census uh, since 1950, and for good reason, because the Commerce Department, which is the federal agency that oversees the census, uh, has uh, oodled of evidence that when the census asks uh, a citizenship question, that immigrant communities and Hispanic communities uh, are very frightened quite often to answer the census in any capacity. They fear that the government will share the citizenship information um, with other agencies like ICE or CBP. Uh, And so if there is a citizenship question, uh, it could provoke an undercount, meaning that uh, immigrant communities uh, all across the country, but especially 
in places like Texas and California and New York will not be properly tallied. Uh, that would reduce those states' representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, and it would also swindle them out of billions and billions of dollars of federal funds that are allocated uh, according to the census. So naturally, a bunch of people have sued to stop the addition of the citizenship question. Uh, chief among them, the New York Attorney General's office, uh, along with a coalition of other state AGs, uh, as well as the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, and a U.S. district judge uh, recently ruled that the case could move forward and specifically that the plaintiffs here uh, could conduct depositions of both Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross and um, the Justice Department official John Gore. Now, those two men are very important to this case because the, the case is really a challenge to the reasons why the Trump administration wants this question on the census, right? Uh, the ACLU says that it's motivated by racial and xenophobic animus, that it was added in an arbitrary and capricious manner. Uh, and Wilbur Ross says, no, 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 I, I actually am only adding it because the Justice Department uh, asked me to include it so that they could uh, better protect minorities from vote dilution. So Wilbur Ross said that under oath before Congress. Uh, and then uh, a few months later, some papers were revealed uh, which uh, showed that, in fact, it was Ross himself who asked the Justice Department to send him that request. So the whole thing was kind of a charade. The fix was in, right? And Ross then lied about all of this under oath before Congress. Uh, the man who he was colluding with at the Justice Department to sort of put forth this lie, John Gore. So naturally, the ACLU wants to depose both of these men and get to to the bottom uh, of exactly why they decided to add this question, if their motivations were were really pure. Um, and the district court said, yeah, you can depose them. Absolutely. This goes to the heart of your case. The second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals also said, yep, absolutely. Go ahead and depose them. Uh, but lo and behold, this reaches the U.S. Supreme Court and we get a split decision uh, in which the justices said, yes, you can depose Gore, but no, you cannot depose Wilbur Ross. Uh, who was really sort of the center of the ACLU's case. Uh, two justices, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas, said that they would have blocked all of this discovery. They would have stopped both depositions uh, and basically signaled that they think everything Trump is doing here is A-OK, hunky-dory, uh, and that nobody has any right to peek behind the curtain and try to figure out what the real motivations here are. And and you wrote about this this week, Mark, and you and I have talked so often on this show about how John Roberts, especially now the chief justice, is really going to double down on business as usual, nothing to see here, not a partisan court. Uh, you wrote about what it meant that Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas reached way beyond what they had to do uh, and wrote what they wrote. Can you and I think you also said uh, it. You certainly had questions uh, with Justice Gorsuch's logic uh, in coming to that conclusion. Can you just briefly say, I guess, A, what does it mean to you that uh, in this instance, Justices Thomas and Gorsuch were telegraphing something uh, about how things are going to go in the future? And and then just unpack, if you would, uh, uh, your feeling that Gorsuch's reasoning was really flawed. 
Yeah, so so what Gorsuch said, joined only by Thomas, was that there's nothing unusual about a cabinet secretary changing policies. And he said there, there's no real evidence of bad faith on the part of Wilbur Ross here. All Wilbur Ross did was come in and try to cut through some red tape. And yeah, he changed a policy that career appointees might have some issues with. But whatever, you know, he gets to have control over his own department. Uh, and so we should give him a pass. That is really not a candid uh, account of what went on here. Uh, the district court's uh, finding uh, really centered around the fact not just that Ross changed his policy, not that Ross cut through red tape, but that Ross lied about what he had done, that he misrepresented the truth about the process of the citizenship question being added to the census, and that his lies looked a lot like pretext to cover up illegal motivations and arbitrary decision-making that he knew would not hold water in court. Gorsuch conveniently elided all of that in his dissent. I thought it was really dishonest, really, frankly, beneath him as a justice to to reframe the facts, um, to make Ross sound like a saint, um, which was, of course, very different from what the lower courts had seen. Um, and, and so what, what I think Gorsuch and Thomas were doing here was was drawing a line in their general um, opposition to deference to administrative agencies. So we know that sounds wonky, but look, we know that Gorsuch and Thomas, they don't want the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of Education, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. They don't, they don't want these agencies that implement federal law to have a lot of power and independence, right? They think that's bad because they don't like these agencies. They, that's what they we call think, Chevron deference, right? Yes, when that's you hear Chevron that word, difference. you're not talking about the gas station. You're talking <laughs> no, about no. That, that pushback. Okay. Yeah. And so the courts, uh, under a longstanding rule, the courts sort of defer to uh, an agency's reasonable interpretation of the law because they're the experts, not the courts. And uh, so they, the agencies themselves should be the ones who figure this out. Gorsuch is on an anti-Chevron deference rampage, right? He says we shouldn't defer to the EPA. We shouldn't defer to uh, any of these agencies, right? We're the ones who read the law. We shouldn't let unelected bureaucrats be making these decisions, be manipulating federal law. Uh, and then we come to this case, which is, I think, a quintessential example of where deference to agencies goes horribly awry, right? Here we have uh, a political appointee uh, clearly manipulating federal law, arguably violating federal law, uh, along with a cohort of unaccountable bureaucrats uh, in order to materially alter not just the process, but the findings of the 2020 census, trying to hide all of this behind vague claims of privilege. And then Gorsuch says, oh, that's totally fine by me. Not only is it totally fine, but I don't think that we have any business letting these interest groups, that's how Gorsuch referred to the ACLU, letting these interest groups uh, peer behind the curtain and figure out what's going on at this agency. That is just so utterly hypocritical to me. I mean, it's totally out of line with everything he has ever set up to this point about bureaucrats and federal agencies that it seems to me he 
basically wants to give a uh, give a pass uh, to the Trump administration in its efforts to rig the census. I mean, I know that's a really cynical view of what's going on here, uh, but it's tough to read it as any other way because it's such a departure from his jurisprudence, from his philosophical principles about this stuff that it seems to me that he knows Trump's trying to rig the census. And I guess the most uh, generous reading is that he thinks the president gets to rig the census if he wants to. That is really distasteful to me. Talk a little bit about the cases that are coming up. Uh, I know we have been sort of waiting for this great sort uh, until Kavanaugh took his seat. And so uh, we don't have a, a huge blockbuster-ish term. But talk talk to me about what you're looking forward to, or maybe that's not the right word. But what are you looking ahead to, Mark? Yeah, so there are two pretty big cases that uh, I'm looking ahead to, both involving criminal justice, that I think will be real blockbusters and, and fascinating no matter how they come out. Uh, the first one is Tim's v. Indiana, and that's a case involving a civil forfeiture, which is uh, this practice that's sort of universally maligned outside of police uh, departments and prosecutors' offices, uh, in which when you get uh, convicted of a crime, the state comes in and basically seizes all your stuff and says, well, this is what you deserve for being a criminal. And uh, in this case, the state came in and seized this uh, this guy who was caught up in drugs. He was convicted for a drug offense. The state seized his very, very nice car, which w- whose value was actually four times more than the maximum fine that the state could have possibly imposed, right? Uh, civil forfeiture is bad. Uh, the left and the right criminal justice reformers all across the political spectrum seem to agree that there's just no good policy reasons for criminal for, for, for this kind of forfeiture. Uh, it's just designed to enrich police officers and, and prosecutors. And so this case, Tim's v. Indiana, it, it's a, a question of whether the Eighth Amendment's bar against excessive fines applies to the states. So we know that most of the Bill of Rights apply to state governments, right? Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, freedom from cruel and unusual punishments. But the court has never said whether the excessive fines clause does apply to the states. And if it does, then in one fell swoop, the court could really curtail this forfeiture issue that has been just putting thousands and thousands of people uh, into massive debt. Just basically the state is stealing all of their stuff. Uh, This case could put a stop to that. And so it's interesting to see it's united, you know, the ACLU and the R Street Institute, for instance, the Cato Institute uh, and uh, the Constitutional Accountability Center. All of these groups across the spectrum are coming together to say this is one area of criminal justice reform where the courts can really make a dent. So I'm certainly looking forward to that case. And what's the other mark that you're looking forward to? So the other is Gamble versus United States. And this is another criminal justice case. Uh, it involves the dual sovereignty exception to double jeopardy. And it's actually kind of similar to the last one I was talking about. So we know that the state, uh, the government can't try you uh, for the same offense twice, right? If I go into a store and rob some jewels and the government prosecutes me and I get acquitted by a jury, uh, the prosecutors don't just get to go back and say, well, we're going to try you again because we think we'll get it right this time. But there is an exception that allows state governments and the federal government to try the same individual for the exact same crime. And it's an exception that appears nowhere in the Constitution itself. 
it was sort of concocted by the federal courts, more or less out of whole cloth. It's called the dual sovereignty exception. Uh, once again, here, there is broad consensus across the political spectrum that this exception is really bad. And one of the main reasons why is that federal criminal law now covers almost everything. You know, there are so many federal criminal laws, many, many, many more than there were when the Constitution was ratified. And so the federal government can basically step in and try you for almost anything at once. That was not the case when the Fifth Amendment or the Fourteenth Amendment were ratified. Um, and so the the angle here is essentially that, look, the the whole premise of double jeopardy is that the government gets one bite at the apple. It gets one shot in front of a jury to send you away. And if it misses, if it fails, it doesn't get a do-over. And it shouldn't count as a different kind of trial or a different kind of prosecution just because the individuals who are prosecuting you change from the state to the federal government. So that's a big case uh, that, again, sort of unites the right and the left. It may have some implications for the Mueller investigation, which we can talk about. I think those have been overstated. And I'm really hoping that the court uses this to do away with dual sovereignty forever. I was just going to say this is the case that everybody fixated on early in the term, right, Mark, where they said this is going to be what happens when Donald Trump you know, pardons himself. And then uh, the court will be deciding whether or not New York uh, can prosecute him for the same crimes. But I, I think I agree with you. I think that was one of those overreads that um, doesn't map actually nearly as neatly onto this case and this doctrine. Yeah. And I think also Judge Sugarman has written in Slate that Mueller was pretty careful not to try or, or not to charge um, these individuals for the whole gamut of crimes that they could be charged with. I think even if the dual sovereignty exemption is done away with, as I hope it will be, uh, there will be room for state prosecutors to come in and get a little creative and charge uh, some of Trump's allies who have already been convicted under federal law. Mark, before we unsummon you, can you talk just very, very broad brush about what you're thinking about the big themes of this term? Last uh, year, we ended the term talking about weaponizing free speech. We talked about uh, religious dissenters. Uh, what, what what are you and lot of voting cases? What are you seeing in terms of groups positioning themselves? Gun groups are suddenly newly emboldened. Some of the reproductive rights groups are now standing down. What 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 what's coming next? What should we watch for? Uh in terms of free speech, in, in terms, terms of, of the Second Amendment, big themes of the term. Big things of the term. Let's see. I think that the biggest theme will be, does John Roberts try to keep this docket as quiet as possible? I mean, he does not want any blockbusters this term because of Kavanaugh, right? He does not want any eyes on the court. So it'll be interesting to see if he tries to swat away these cases. But, you know, I think in terms of uh, major blockbusters, this court has to take a Second Amendment case sometime soon. It has to. There are all of these incredibly split decisions across the the country uh, about assault weapons bans, background checks, waiting periods, so-called cooling off periods uh, between gun purchases. These are all percolating up to the court. Uh, and so it's going to have to take one of these cases and decide, is it going to go big on the Second Amendment and say no reasonable regulations, you know, guns everywhere? Or is it going to take a sort of modest route and say, yes, the, the Second Amendment allows 
breathing room for gun restrictions. The other big issue is, I think, transgender rights. Uh, similarly, we've got all of these decisions involving uh, Trump's ban on transgender troops, right, in the military, um, uh, transgender school children, transgender employees. There's this new memo that tries to strip transgender people from civil rights protections. These cases are going to come up to the court as well. And I unfortunately don't think they're going to go uh, the uh, progressive direction. I don't think there are five votes to affirm equal dignity for trans people. Um, but that's something I don't know if Roberts can really duck. So the big theme is, can Roberts duck these fastballs that are flying at his docket? Or is he going to have to accept that the court will become the political center of gravity again by June 2019? Mark Joseph Stern covers the courts and the law and uh, everything <laughs> judicial uh, for Slate. Uh, he also covers our LGBTQ uh, issues, uh, and he writes faster than I think. Uh, Mark Stern, <laughs> thank you so much for teeing up the term, and we look forward to having you back. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, have you looked into joining our members program, Slate Plus? Because you should really think about it. If you join Slate Plus... You can enjoy this and all of Slate's other podcasts ad-free, plus extended versions of some of our shows and bonus episodes of others. And you will be supporting our work at the very same time. And in case you're still thinking about it, how about a free trial? You can find a link to that and more info at slateplus.com slash amicus. Also, you'll be supporting the journalism that we do here at Slate. And now back to the show. Joining us now is Richard Hassan. He teaches law and political science at UC Irvine School of Law. He is also the go-to guy at the Election Law Blog and hosts that blog's Election Law Blog podcast. We had him on the show this last summer to discuss his most recent book, The Justice of Contradictions, Antonin Scalia and the Politics of Disruption. But in this run-up to the midterms, we wanted to have him on to ask about the fallout from Supreme Court cases like Shelby County and the voting rights cases from this past term and how, if at all, those cases are going to affect the November elections and how they inform what feels like the freakout we're seeing this week around whether we will ever have free and fair elections again. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Oh, I'm so glad to be back with you. And I guess that's my first question. Is it, are we just doing the same old freak out dance about, you know, vote suppression and gerrymandering and machine irregularities and all the stuff that happens every single election and every single year you say, maybe we should think about this and not wait till the week before elections? Or is this a different flavor of freak out in your view? Well, I think it's kind of a complex picture of what's going on right now. And uh, as I wrote uh, in Slate recently, uh, it's really that we have two Americas. And it's not red state America and blue state America quite that. In lots of states, including in a number of red states, it's become considerably easier to register and to vote. And although there are some problems, 
people are doing the best they can to uh, ensure that all eligible voters can easily register and cast a vote that can count. So, for example, online voter registration, it's a big deal in lots of states, not just in blue states. Uh, even automatic voter registration is coming to some uh, red and purple states. Uh, and so, in lots of the country, things are getting better. Uh, they may not be good enough, but they're getting better. But then there are other parts of the country, and these all tend to be red states, but again, it's not all red states, where new, uh, more restrictive registration and voting rules have come into place, where the way that elections are being conducted raises at least the potential that things are being done to disenfranchise minority voters and voters who are likely to vote for Democrats. And uh, thanks to a couple of Supreme Court decisions and uh, thanks to the fact that the Constitution gives considerable authority to state and local governments to run even federal elections, uh, there's a lot of room for uh, a maneuvering that could affect whether or not someone's going to be able to cast a ballot. And without the parts of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court killed in the Shelby County case uh, in 2013, uh, there is uh, a requirement of trench warfare. That is, every single election change has to be fought in the courts and is draining the resources of voting rights organizations. And it is uh, impossible to go after every uh, single case. And in a place like Georgia, which has been, I think, the headline this election there, I think there were last count five lawsuits over the voting rules and just, there's just so much going on. It's hard to even keep track of it. Uh, but it does seem like to me that in those places that have decided to make it harder to register and vote, they have freer reign than before. And so a freak out is, uh, in order at this point. So, so just to be super clear, you're carbon dating this to Shelby County and the evisceration of key components of the Voting Rights Act. You're not carbon dating it to this past June, right? To the gerrymandering, the voter purges, the the stuff that we saw at the very end of the term that I think we most of us missed. You didn't, uh, but in the drama around Justice Kennedy's retirement, we missed that there was a pretty serious Supreme Court decision to get out of the. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna watch uh, this carefully. Business, it's that's not what we're seeing playing out now, right? Well, I actually trace things back first to the 2000 election. Uh, I looked at the amount of litigation before and after election litigation before and after the 2000 election, and it's more than doubled. It's become clear to people that in close elections, the rules of the game matter, and as we have polarized electorates um, and very close elections. Uh, some people are trying to manipulate the rules. Uh, so one place to mark is 2000. Another place to mark is 2008, when the Supreme Court decided a case called Crawford versus Marion County Election Board, which not only upheld against a uh, facial challenge, the uh, strict Indiana voter ID law, but also um, said that uh, in engaging in the kind of balancing that is uh, required by these constitutional cases, the state doesn't have to produce any evidence of voter fraud or lack of voter confidence in order to support any of these laws. But plaintiffs have to come forward with lots of evidence that the laws burden voters in order to be able to block them. Then you've got the 2013 Shelby County case. And then you've got not just, uh, I think you were referring to the Ohio Mm -hmm. voter purge case. I don't think that case is all that significant because the kind of things that we're seeing now don't directly flow from that. I would look more at uh, a case uh, that was uh, 
actually a registration case called Abbott versus Perez, mm-hmm. where Justice Alito, in rejecting these long-standing challenges to Texas's registering law, really signaled for the court, and this is even before Kennedy left, that the court was not going to be aggressive in enforcing Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which is the main part of the Voting Rights Act that remains after Shelby County. And of course, with the replacement of Justice Kennedy with Justice Kavanaugh, I think it's only going to get worse because uh, on certain voting rights issues, sometimes we did see Justice Kennedy vote with the plaintiffs to find Voting Rights Act violations. I'm much less confident that we're going to see that with Justice Kavanaugh. So what we're seeing, and you wrote about this in your slate piece, but let's review it, at least in some states in North Dakota, Georgia, Dodge City, Kansas, what we're seeing uh, and what the newspapers are really, really honing in on this week looks like straight up vote suppression. Can you can you lay out what's going on there and how it's again, I think you've said people are trying to tweak the rules, you know, polling places close. Uh, we get rid, rid of one thing. We do another thing. But can, can you try to hone in on if there's a theme that unites those three stories that we're all following? Well, so, uh, you know, first of all, I should point out there was a great Vice story, which I linked to in my uh, Slate piece, which looked at polling place closures. And and let me just explain uh, that in those parts of the country that were covered under this part of the Voting Rights Act that the Supreme Court killed in the Shelby County case, you couldn't move a polling place across the street or close a polling place without first demonstrating to the United States Department of Justice or to a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., that the change was not going to make protected minority voters worse off. And and the burden was on the state to show that. That's what's gone. And the Vice story showed that polling places are being closed at much higher rates in places that used to be covered under the preclearance provisions than in the rest of the country. Closing a polling place makes it less convenient to vote. And I mean, I I think that the Dodge City uh, example in Kansas, where a predominantly uh, predominantly Latino town uh, uh, had... um, I, I think the figure was 27,000 people and only one polling place. And then that one polling place was moved out of town a mile from the closest uh, bus stop. Uh, and so uh, that looks pretty egregious. Now, t- Kansas was not covered under Section 5 uh, right. of the Voting Rights Act, so that would not have had to have been pre-cleared. But you know, it takes a lot of effort and energy to try to win a Voting Rights Act lawsuit. And so not clear that anything's going to be done in time. I did see that Lyft is coming in and offering people free rides to the polls, but you know, how many people are going to know that and take advantage of that? So that's Kansas, and uh, we're seeing a whole bunch of different things going on in Georgia, uh, including uh, this um, holding of about 53,000 voter registration cards that have been submitted for people to register to vote in Georgia. They're being held because they don't have an exact match. It could be as simple as someone has a hyphenated last name and the hyphen is missing, comparing their voter registration card to what's uh, in their official record uh, uh, on their birth certificate or their driver's license. Um, Those people are going to be able to vote uh, if they go to the polling place and they know that they're allowed to vote, even though they haven't gotten a confirmation that they are registered to vote. And they're going to have to produce a substantial match of their name to what the government record said. Uh, there's also uh, a lawsuit about what happens when an election official says your signature doesn't match on your absentee ballot application and uh, the state wasn't processing those. And there's now been a uh, an order from a judge that's going to 
require that there be some chance to prove your identity and cure the problem if you're being kicked out because your signature from 20 years ago doesn't match what's going on now. I mean, these are petty little uh, uh, discrepancies that can be the basis for disenfranchising people. And then there's North Dakota. North Dakota, uh, after 2012, after Senator Heidi Heitkamp uh, squeaked by, I think she won by about 3,000 votes in the state of North Dakota, the state made it harder for people to prove their identification in order to be able to vote if they live uh, on um, Native American reservations. You have to have a residential address. Many people live on these uh, in these areas do not have a residential address. They have a P.O. box because their streets are not marked. Uh, maybe up to 2,000 voters um, uh, in these Native American communities are not going to be able to vote. And when you have an election decided by 3,000 votes the last time, that could be a real difference. Um, but what ties these together is in some states where it's close, uh, you're seeing uh, the manipulating of the rules that are going to make it harder for people to vote and people to vote who are likely to vote for Democrats. In fact, Brian Kemp was, uh, according to Rolling Stone, they released some audio, Brian Kemp giving a story where he's worried, he expresses out loud at a fundraiser that he's worried, uh, what if all those people who are registered actually turn out to vote? Uh, and the Secretary of State should not be concerned about what if people turn out to vote. Uh, he should be encouraging people to do so. Well, especially if he himself is on the ballot running for governor. Uh, once he's a candidate, this whole sort of strange self-serving nature of secretaries of states who are laying down regulations that purge certain voters or that discourage certain voters from voting and also um, their name is on the ballot. That is, I, I think if you were a visiting alien, that would have to be one of the single strangest things about the way we uh, do voting in this country. That parties who are clearly self-interested uh, and motivated by not the purest sense of one person, one vote uh, are also setting the rules. Well, it's not just uh, it's not just him. It's also Chris Kobach, right. the notorious um, vote, vote, vote fraud cheerleader uh, in Kansas, secretary of state, chief election officer, also running for governor and John Husted. Uh, of the famous Ohio purge case. Um, he's the Ohio Secretary of State and is running for lieutenant governor. Um, it's already bad enough uh, when you have uh, people who are partisans, who have allegiance to the party, are the ones who are running elections. It's that much worse when they're on the very ballots and get to make rules. And there was a very close election in the Republican primary for governor in Kansas. And it took a lot of public pressure in a few days before Chris Kobach agreed to recuse himself from any issues related to his uh, potential recount in his own election. I mean, it's just kind of shocking that uh, this is how we are running our democracy. Uh, really surprised that uh, something like this would um, exist in 2018, but this is where we are. We're not moving. I complained about this uh, after 2000. I wrote about it in my 2012 book. The only state that has changed its uh, approach is Wisconsin, and, and it's gone from nonpartisan election administration to partisan election administration. The legislature killed the nonpartisan body that was running the elections. That was kind of a model for what the rest of the country should do. So things are certainly moving in the wrong direction when it comes to this. 
And you point out in your piece, and I think it's worth flagging, there are fixes for this, right? There's a fix afoot to make sure that if you uh, are, you know, have a P.O. box in North Dakota, you will be able to have uh, the right kind of ID there. You suggested in your piece, someone just needs to set up some buses uh, in Dodge City, Kansas. But this is not a systemic fix. This is oh, my God, the house is on fire. How do we get some people to the polls? Despite uh, what's going on, I think your larger pitch for as long as you and I have known each other is why can't we fix these underlying systems uh, so that this isn't happening in the weeks before an election? And the answer to that, I think you've just said, is because it's a wholly partisan enterprise. Right. And of course, now is the time that it matters the most. And now is the time that we're least likely to see uh, any kind of fix being put in place because everybody knows that these fixes can have winners and losers. And so everything is seen through a partisan lens. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out how you reform a system uh, is difficult. I mean, I have some hope that in states that have the initiative process, they could try to um, change some of these rules to uh, uh, take away political power. But who's going to pay the millions of dollars it takes to get something like that on the ballot and run a campaign. You know, it's just, it's hard to see how we get there. We we know what non-personal election administration can look like because you can look at just about every other advanced democracy in the world and they don't run the elections the way we do. They're not hyper-decentralized. They're not run by partisan actors uh, using different kinds of equipment and different rules in every state to vote in the same federal election. Well, well, dream with me, uh, Rick Hassan. You you open by saying there are states that are making massive inroads in making sure that voting is faster and efficient and uh, clear. What 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 does it look like in your head if um, Chris Kobach called you and said, "Hey, Rick Hassan, I'd like you to design uh, the the perfect universal voting system that makes sure that." First and foremost, every uh, voter believes uh, and is confident that their vote will be counted. What does that look like? Well, you know, if we look to other countries, for examples, uh, we can have um, national elections with uh, uniform equipment, uh, which has been tested to make sure that it's not hackable. That's another problem in Georgia. They've got terrible problems with the security of their election system problems which uh, a judge last month said were just outrageous and it was too late to change it for this election, but strongly suggesting that the system was so insecure that um, uh, it, it may be unconstitutional to use it in future elections. So we've got, we've got to keep our eye on that. Uh, so we need a secure voting system, especially with the threats of foreign interference. Um, I would give everyone a uh, national voter identification number and a national voter ID card. And I would have universal voter registration. Everyone, as soon as they turn 18, unless they object, gets registered to vote. And that registration number follows you your whole life. And if you want to vote, you produce either your ID card or, or your number from your ID. Or if you want to, you can give your thumbprint, which could just you know uh, determine who, who you are at the time. If you move, when you file that change of address form, it would go with you from state to state. But if you lived in Montana or you lived in New Jersey and you walked into the polling place, the machinery would look exactly the same. The ballot would look exactly the same. Nonpartisan officials would be in charge of having those votes counted. Now, this is just a dream. Uh, I talked about it in my 2012 book. It doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So we really have to talk about our second and third best solutions. And we're seeing some of those. For example, I make reference in the Slate piece to um, a system that's been developed for states to share data 
their databases to remove people from the roles who've moved. So, you know, you move from Montana to New Jersey and you may not contact the Montana uh, Secretary of State's office, tell them to remove you from the voting rolls. And so uh, the states share data to make sure that there's not dead weight on the rolls. And so we don't have these problems about, um, you know, claims of more uh, uh, dead people on the ballot uh, or, uh, you know, people who uh, are not eligible to vote anymore on uh, on the um, voter rolls. Uh, so there's that kind of cooperation. Online voter registration. I was on a panel at um, University of Texas, a Texas Tribune panel last year, and someone said, what's the single one thing you would do in Texas to change things? And I said, online voter registration, because there are people that live sometimes, uh, you know, dozens of miles, in some cases, over hundreds of miles from the nearest uh, 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 DMV need to be able to go in and fill out a voter registration card. Um, if people could register online, they're also less likely to input their name wrong into a database. And if we're requiring an exact match, someone who doesn't know your name is much more likely to misspell it. I mean, so there are lots of things that would be second best that we can do that we're not doing uh, in this country, uh, uh, even if we're never going to achieve universal voter registration, nonpartisan, nationalized uh, voter ID with uh, the optional thumbprint that I Im- imagined in my 2012 book. So, so so, two pieces of pushback. One is, no, the, the reason we cede this power to state and local uh, authorities is because it's really important uh, for some uh, state rights reason that I can't quite articulate right at this moment. It's really, really important uh, that uh, local uh, entities uh, administer their elections uh, in their own way, and that we sort of have this patchwork decentralized system because presumably the person who uh, looks in your eyes is somebody you know. What's your response to that? That's just a, a longstanding story we tell in this country. Sure. There's a, there is a story like that, and there is a long tradition of a hyper-decentralized election administration, so we don't run one election on election day. It's something like 10,000 different elections. But my, my first answer would be, the Constitution, uh, in Article One, gives Congress the power to set the rules for congressional elections. So this has already been contemplated. This is the fight that was had between uh, Chris Kobach and um, the ACLU over whether or not uh, the for federal elections the uh, state of Kansas has to accept people who register on federal voter registration cards that uh, don't require documentary proof of citizenship, which is now what's required if you want to be able to vote in Kansas. And so far, the courts time and again have said the federal rules trump unless you can prove massive non-citizen voting, which Kobach cannot prove, uh, the federal rules trump. So even though it's been a long tradition, you know, we had a long tradition of separate schools for people of different races. That doesn't make it a good thing. It makes it a longstanding problem. That's what I think we have here. So, so one answer is the Constitution empowers Congress to do this if Congress want to do it. And another answer is um, that we as Americans should not think that our systems are always the best. And there's a reason we're an outlier here. And you know, there's lots of reasons to celebrate diversity and federalism. But when you're running a federal election, uh, especially when you're running a presidential election, it shouldn't be that uh, people in one state have a much greater chance of having their vote not count than people in another state. That's just, uh, I don't see the federal value of any of that. 
So, so I'm going to give you my, my second piece of pushback, and it will open the door for you to talk about the scourge of vote fraud. But um, the scourge of vote fraud, Rick, uh, you know, people, dead people vote and Mickey Mouse votes and people, you know, line up uh, 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 foreigners and put them on buses and they vote. And this is the other story that is the reason that folks are doing the kinds of purges and the kind of voter ID and the kind of suppression we've been talking about. Uh, what do you do when the country, I think almost across the ideological boards, believes that there is this massive problem of fraudulent voting that is distorting uh, our elections? And all of these measures are the only thing standing between uh, foreigners controlling our elections. Oh, Dahlia, I know. I'm so tired. I know. I'm tired of this. Uh, and uh, here's what we know. Um, we know that voter fraud is a very small problem in the United States. Now you might say, well, how do we know that? Uh, because people commit other kinds of crimes and they're prosecuted. Um, people don't always commit the perfect crime. And so if we're talking about impersonation fraud, I go to the polling place, pretend to be someone else. Uh, we can't find any modern elections where there's been an organized effort that's, you know, worked to, to, um, steal an election this way. Uh, we can find lots of absentee ballot fraud. Uh, this often happens because absentee ballots are being cast outside the presence of election officials. They could be bought or sold. It's not a huge problem, but people are prosecuted for it. And, uh, you know, ironically, uh, uh, you don't find lots of laws aimed at curbing absentee ballot fraud, I think, because those kinds of laws don't discriminate against Democrats uh, uh, and against minority voters. So so those laws are not being put uh, in place. Um, in terms of non-citizen voting, uh, for years, uh, people like um, Hans von Spakovsky uh, and uh, Chris Kobach have claimed that non-citizen voting is a huge problem. Chris Kobach famously said it was the tip of the iceberg. Uh, and um, I think it was Dale Ho of the ACLU who said that the iceberg turned out to be an ice cube. Uh, in that litigation I referred to earlier involving the Kansas um, requiring documentary proof of citizenship case, this was the chance to ask a federal judge to look at the evidence. This was Kobach's chance for you know, the, the great evidence to be put before the court to determine how big a problem is it, because he had to prove it was a big problem. And literally, he's found almost nothing. And what I think is especially important about this finding of almost nothing were Kobach had claimed that non-citizen voting was a huge problem in Kansas, is that the Kansas legislature, at Kobach's request, had changed the law to give him the power to prosecute voter fraud. That's No other Secretary of State has that power. You always refer things to the district attorney's office. Uh, he has been given this power, and he has not prosecuted non-citizen voting. Uh, he's not finding it. The few prosecutions he've done, uh, he's done, they've mostly involved Republicans, older men who own property in two states like Kansas and Missouri, and they end up voting in both states, not even necessarily uh, at the same time, but they claim to be registered in two states at the same time. So um, the, the amount of impersonation fraud is basically zero. You know, we can find isolated cases, not organized efforts. The amount of non-citizen voting is small, although it exists. The amount of absentee ballot uh, fraud is 
small, but in some pockets of the country, it's a problem. But most of these measures are not aimed at actually stopping the little bit of fraud that exists. Uh, Voter ID doesn't stop any appreciable amount of fraud, as I've mentioned. Um, Mickey Mouse, you might you might turn in a uh, fraudulent voter registration card registering Mickey Mouse. Turns out Mickey Mouse never comes to vote on election day, and so uh, it, it is. It is unfortunately a mantra that the president has been repeatedly stating. I think, in part, to try to explain away his uh, the fact that he lost the popular vote by uh, about three million votes. Uh, in part as a precaution in case he loses election so that he can claim that he lost because of fraud. But uh, what was once on the fringes of the Republican Party, I think people have heard it so much that many people tend to believe it. And of course, Democrats are very good at shouting voter suppression. And I think sometimes they shout voter suppression when they shouldn't. Um, But there's at least some basis for in some of these cases, like what's going on in Georgia, to make the claim that the vote is being suppressed. And I, and I don't want you to leave before you talk us through uh, so much of this is you're describing big systemic problems. Uh, uh, some of it really is just broken, old, crappy machines, uh, huge lines. Uh, there's nowhere to park. Some of it is just, you know, what seems like. Poor management. Poor management or, you know, uh, poll workers who just don't know what to do. I mean, so many of the stories that are going to emerge on Election Day will be those kinds of stories. What do you tell people? I mean, I I, I, overwhelmingly the emails I get are what do I do (laughs) when that happens? And, And those are not political problems. Those are just we don't care enough to fix it problems. Sure. Although I think there's a political overlay. So already we're seeing stories of people voting on touchscreen voting machines where they're claiming that their votes have been flipped. You know, they're trying to mm-hmm. vote for Stacey Abrams in uh, the Georgia governor's race, and it's changing the vote uh, to, um, say, uh, Brian Kemp. Uh, we've ar- the NAACP has already complained about this. And I don't think this is because the machines were hacked. Almost always when you look into this, the problem is one of voter calibration error. You know, you have a touch screen, you touch the screen. After a while, these machines need to be recalibrated. So when you touch it, it records the vote accurately. So lots of these problems um, have a political overlay because people who are naturally suspicious, they're a Democrat and they go in and the Republican Secretary of State's name is the one that's coming up when they're trying to vote for the Democrat. You can see why that's political. But you're right that a lot of this is really a question of sound administration. And uh, I'm sure that most people don't remember this, but in the period just before the um, Trump era, if we can think back that far, uh, when President Obama was concerned about the long lines at the polling places and the continued problems with people casting ballots, he created a commission. It was the Bauer-Ginsburg Commission, Bob Bauer, who's been on your show, who's a Democratic election lawyer, and Ben Ginsburg, who's a Republican election lawyer, they got together, they formed this commission, and the commission, actually one of the people on the commission was uh, the guy from Disney, who's in charge of queue management, you know, keeping the lines not being any longer uh, than necessary. And they had a great report, which came up with a bunch of recommendations that were totally non-political. It didn't touch voter ID or anything like that, but lots of ways to try to improve the quality of uh, election administration. And even though the Trump administration, for some reason, 
uh, simply removed all of the documents, all of the reports of this commission, and they, they disappeared. They've been reposted by a few different organizations. Even though the Trump administration has been ignoring that, I think some state and local officials have been looking to this as best practices. And so there are efforts that are being made to try to improve the voting experience. Now, if you have a problem, either during early voting or on election day, there are groups like uh, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law that runs uh, uh, an election protection coalition. Uh, and uh, there's a toll-free number you can call. There's a, um, a, a now a set up to text, so you can text. So if you have a problem when you go to try to vote, you can uh, contact these organizations, and they've got volunteer lawyers and others who are there on a complete nonpartisan basis. They don't care who you're voting for. But if you think that your vote is being disenfranchised, um, you need to do something about it. And, and I, I meant to say earlier, and I should say, say this as well, one, one thing that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, I think because it involves Republicans, is that um, there are lots of disenfranchised people in the panhandle of Florida because of the hurricane or unable to vote. And uh, the state has gone in and changed some of the voting rules, made it easier to vote uh, uh, not in your regular precinct, made it easier to vote by absentee ballot. Uh, these kind of changes, um, it's true that the panhandle is uh, a Republican-leaning area. It's true that Rick Scott is uh, on the ballot and signed the rules, but this is something that should be praised. Every voter who's eligible to vote, uh, they shouldn't be disenfranchised simply because they're unlucky enough to be in a hurricane. I mean, th those are the last people you'd want to disenfranchise at this point. So anybody who's having trouble should really contact these election protection groups and see what they can do to be able to cast a ballot that hopefully will be fairly and accurately counted. And, and I just want to give you a chance to say it one more time, because sometimes I think that when we have shows like this one and we talk about broken machines and long lines and voter purges, there's a very natural human impulse to say, eh, it's all broken. My vote doesn't matter. You are not saying Dahlia and Rick Hassan told me to stay home and drink beer. Uh, what we're saying is uh, your vote matters, uh, but we have to fix the way we do this, right? Well, I believe it's a uh, Supreme Court justice who once said, I like beer. Um, <laughs> but have your beer after you go and uh, cast your ballot. And I think, you know, it's a fine line. You know, when you talk about how hard it is to vote, people might stay home. And as I wrote in the Slate piece, and as I really believe, in most places, it's getting easier to register and to vote. And, and that's the way it should be. But uh, in those places, I mean, really, if someone's trying to disenfranchise you, that's all the more reason why you should get out. And try to vote. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus on turnout, uh, whether or not these laws are going to affect, you know, whether Chris Kobach gets elected or Heidi Hotkamp gets reelected or whatever it's going to be. But really, I, I say in the piece, and, and I believe that we should focus on the dignity of each voter, regardless of whether it's going to affect the outcome of the election. Every voter who's eligible should be able to cast that ballot. And there are people out there who are really trying to help because. I think one of the things we've learned in these contentious times is that elections really make a difference. Uh, for those who used to say that it doesn't matter if, uh, you know, who's elected president or who's elected to Congress, it makes a great deal of difference to the everyday lives of people. And, and even in local elections can have huge effects on your life. And so, yeah, absolutely messages get out and vote. And if you're having trouble, there are people out there to help. 
Rick Hassan teaches law and political science at UC Irvine School of Law. He is one of our absolute uh, cherished gems at Slate on voting issues. And if you are not following him at the Election Law blog where he curates all of these stories beautifully, uh, you should be. Rick Hassan, thank you so much for joining us on this show. It's always a pleasure. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, our email, as ever, is amicus at slate.com. And you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. We love your feedback. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcasts. And June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.